Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would get a Bible out and open it up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John the 5th chapter. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment that will set the stage for everything that we're going to talk about this evening. In fact, you may even lay your ribbon there because we're going to book in the lesson in 1 John chapter 5. Let's get those Bible pages turning. Lots of Bible this evening as we work together in the Word of God. It's great to see everybody this evening. I would have been glad if we'd have just kept on just singing all night long. Appreciate so much your hearty participation in the songs. We could have kept singing because I was afraid Brother Roger was going to preach my sermon for me in the middle of that prayer. But thank you for the good prayer, brother. And just thank you so much for being here tonight. I recognize there's lots of other things that you could be doing, good things you could be doing on a Saturday evening. But uh, you've chose to be here. And that encourages me personally. And I know it encourages the brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. And we're, we're thankful for your presence tonight. In 1 John, the fifth chapter is where we're going to begin in just a moment as we continue our weekend series that's being drawn out of Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. Titus 1.16, Paul says that there are people who claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. And based on that verse, we've titled this weekend, The Christian Atheist. Now, those two words together... That sounds like an oxymoron. Those things sound like two things that just don't go together. That's like saying, look at that single bachelor or that that single married person or, you know, look at that circle square. Those Those are opposites. They don't go together. How can a Christian be an atheist? Well, it is a bit of a play on words, but it is drawn out of Titus 1.16 where Titus says, there are people who profess a faith in God, but the actions of their life, their behavior, maybe even just the way that they think, shows some incongruency, there's some inconsistency there. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes those people, sometimes those people are us in here. We can profess to know God, believe in God, thankful for Him, for all He does for me, but then over here in this area, or then over here in this aspect of my life, well, maybe just have some wrong thoughts about God. And that is especially the case with what we're going to talk about this evening from 1 John chapter 5. Read with me, if you will, in verse 13. In 1 John 5 and in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Can I read that verse again? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, no one has ever come to me with an objection to that passage. No one has ever come to me and they've said, Now Josh, can you show me the manuscript evidence for 1 John 5.13? Because I'm not really sure that that ought to be in the Bible. Never had anybody say that to me before. Never met anybody who has a problem with what that verse says until, until you go and you ask an individual Christian, Are you going to heaven when you die? When you stand before the Lord in final judgment, are you going to heaven? What happens when you ask that question to a lot of Christians? What happens is a lot of Christians start to get a case of the mumbles. They start to get a case of the humana, humana, humana as well. I don't really know. I hope that I go to heaven. Perhaps I'll get to go. Maybe I'll go to heaven. I even asked a dear sister in Christ. I just asked her just point blank one time that question. I asked her, sister, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And she just flat out said with just dread in her voice, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that when you start asking that kind of question, there's all kinds of dread and fear and uncertainty that starts to well up in us? 
Why is it that for many Christians, their life as a child of God involves lots of hand-wringing, lots of sweating, not sure if I'm going to make it or not? What's up with that? John said that the people that he wrote to in the first century, that they could know that they have eternal life. Why is it then that so many Christians in the 21st century seem to have the idea that, well, we just just really can't know. I'm just not really sure that I'm saved. Why is it that the idea of having confidence, having assurance in our salvation, why is it that that causes us so much trouble? You know, we sing songs. We're going to sing here in just a few minutes, number four. Blessed assurance. That's a favorite song of many folks. I wonder if they've thought about what that song's talking about. We just got done singing a couple of songs. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Or that next song, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Did you believe that when you sang that? Did you mean it as you said those words? I'm afraid for some Christians you might ought to edit the words of that song to say, when the roll is called up yonder, I kind of sort of maybe hope that maybe I'll get to be there someday. Man, Brother Derek, that'd be a hard song to sing, wouldn't it? You'd put some 16th notes in there or something. Why is it that oftentimes we are so unsure of our salvation? Can we know? Can we even know that we are saved? Is that even a possibility? Maybe you're sitting here this evening and you're thinking, man, this is just heresy to even be standing up there and talking so confidently about one's salvation. I want you this evening, and I want me this evening, to come to the place where we know that we are saved. By the end of this lesson this evening, if not already, I want all of us to find our place in 1 John 5 verse 13. That's exactly what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want us to deal for the next few minutes with some sources of false assurance, some things that do not help us. I want to talk about one of the most commonly believed doctrines in which there is no assurance to be found at all, but more than anything. I want us to be able to find that blessed assurance that John writes about here. I want to know that I have eternal life. As we're doing that this evening, I need to ask you to listen in a very special way. I need to ask you to do what I often refer to as slow listening. And by that, what I mean is I need you to listen all the way through to the very end. At various points throughout this lesson this evening, it's going to be very tempting for you to kind of stop off and say, well, hold on there, partner, I don't know about that. Don't do that. Listen all the way through to the very end as we try to talk about in a thorough kind of way what God's Word says about assurance of salvation. Are you ready for that? Maybe we ought to start that just by saying that there are some people who think that they have assurance of salvation and they just flat shouldn't. Look with me in Matthew, the seventh chapter, please. In Matthew chapter 7, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, I am impressed with the fact that last evening Josh Harris talked to us about knowing the Lord. And yet here in this passage, Jesus says that there's coming a day in which He's going to look at some people and He's going to say, I don't know you. Well, why is He going to say that to some folks? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is there anything that makes Satan any happier than for people who are lost to somehow imagine and feel that they are saved? 
That's the kind of people Jesus is describing here. People who professed a knowledge of the Lord, claimed to do all kinds of good things and wonderful things for the Lord, and yet they were not in a right relationship with God. What's going to happen to people like that? Well, in all probability in this life, they're going to be lost, and they're going to stay lost. And why is that? Well, basically because nobody can say anything to them that's going to help them. I can't go up to a person who is lost but who feels that they are saved and say, Hey, can I talk to you about salvation? Can I talk to you about what the Bible says about God's plan for man's redemption and man's salvation? What's that person going to say to me? That person's going to say to me, Buzz off! I'm already saved! I'm already a Christian! I don't need you to tell me about how to become a child of God. Go talk to the guy down the street. He needs to know about that. But me... Not me, I'm so saved. Then on the day of judgment, those very same people are the ones who are going to hear those dreaded words, depart from me, I never knew you. And why is that? Because they relied on how they felt for assurance, only to receive the worst news possible when they meet Jesus face to face. What all of that is to say is that we must be very, very vigilant about our salvation. We must not ever take any man's word for it, And yes, that even includes ourselves. Look with me in 1 Corinthians, please. In 1 Corinthians, let me stitch together a couple of passages from 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 5. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 5, as he tells the Corinthians about the the gospel message that he had brought to them and how that was brought to them, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5, it was brought to you that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let me add to that what he says in chapter 4. Turn the page to chapter 4 and in verse 6. Paul says there, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. We need to make certain that what we believe about our salvation, that it is based on what is written and not based on what somebody told us, not based on the wisdom of some man, that we just really, really wanted to believe that. In fact, the Apostle Paul who wrote this is really the perfect candidate to tell us and to warn us here that just because you think or you feel that you are saved, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you are saved. Because Paul is the very one who in Acts the 23rd chapter, he spoke about his former manner of life in what way? During that period of time when he persecuted the church, when he was arresting Christians, bringing them to be killed and to be executed, Paul is the one who would say, I've lived in all good conscience up to this present day. Paul is the consummate example of someone who thought, who felt that he was saved when in fact he was not. And it is that false sense of security that leads the Apostle Peter to write this important admonition in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, after that that list of what we call the Christian graces, these things that we want to add, we want to develop, we want to cultivate in our lives as God's children, he then says in verse 10, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make it sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter says that we need to be checking, and in fact we need to be rechecking, as to whether we are walking with the Lord. We don't want to be on the receiving end of that terrible surprise on Judgment Day that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, do we? Some folks have assurance and they shouldn't have it. 
because they're not saved. They haven't done the will of the Father. You know, you've probably heard the illustration before. I've used lots of illustrations along these lines whenever we talk about the, the folly of relying on our feelings as proof of salvation. Maybe you've heard the illustration before that if you were to go down to the airport on Monday afternoon because you really think that your flight is on Monday afternoon, but then when you get there and you find out that your flight is actually on Tuesday afternoon, well, the fact that you thought it was on Monday, and maybe you really, really believed it deep down in your heart, that doesn't change one thing, does it? You thought and you felt wrong. But you know what? By that very same token, there's also some folks who don't feel like their flight is on Monday afternoon. They just don't feel very certain about that. But guess what? Their flight is on Monday. They were relying on their feelings too, albeit in a slightly different way. Their feelings were saying, I'm just not so sure about this. You know what? That happens a lot of times to Christians. Because sometimes we tell ourselves that I just don't feel like I'm saved. My feelings, my gut, my heart is telling me that I'm just not, not right with God. I'm not saved. I'm not in Christ. There's lots of reasons as to why we feel that way. Maybe we give in to some temptation, some habitual temptation, and we give in in the moment. Maybe we're not seeing spiritual growth in our life at the rate that we had wished. Maybe we're going through a terrible time of trial and testing and we feel like, like God's just punishing us and He's got it out for us and in some way He's trying to get our attention because we're not living right. And in those moments, we don't feel very confident about our salvation. Many times it's in those moments that we start having doubts. Can I ask you, where do you think a lot of those doubts come from? certainly don't want to suggest that all of those doubts would be entirely illegitimate. But I am of the persuasion that many times those doubts are illegitimate. And that's because they come from an evil and a wicked source. Would you find the book of Revelation, please? In Revelation chapter 12, we're told here about the work and the activity of the devil. In Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, John records that that great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I may not understand everything about the book of Revelation, But I understand what that verse says. That verse says that the devil is always saying something, isn't he? The devil is always tugging at our jacket. The devil is always trying to whisper in our ears, Hey, remember that bad thing you did? Hey, remember how awful you used to be? Hey, you can't do that and expect to go to heaven. Hey, Look at that brother over there. He's way better of a Christian than you are. Or that sister over there. She's way more spiritual than you can be. I understand about that. The devil is always accusing us. He's always trying to plant those seeds of doubt in our minds. And as a result, we do often second guess our salvation. This past week, a young lady, a young sister in Christ, a member of a church up in the Lexington area, she posted on Facebook that she had made the decision to not be a Christian anymore. Made the decision, don't want to be a Christian. Just giving up, just quitting doing that. Don't want to be recognized as a Christian. 
And in her manifesto, if you will, she cited about 15 different reasons as to why she no longer wanted to be identified as a Christian. One of the ones that was most striking to me was this one right here, number 14. I'll read it for you. She said, trying to meet the Bible standards and falling short, it always makes you feel bad about yourself because it's impossible. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt that way like this young sister did? To a point where, what's the point? I can't do that. I just don't feel like I'm ever going to be right with God. My gut is telling me I can't do this. If you've ever felt that way, if you've ever had those moments where your heart, your insides is telling you that you're not saved, then here's your verse. It's in 1 John again. Would you find 1 John 3? In 1 John chapter 3, John speaks here about our confidence in the Lord. And so he writes in 1 John 3, this is verse 19. 1 John 3, 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Just like we tell people over here in the I feel saved camp, the ones who say, you know what, I wouldn't trade what I feel in my heart for a stack of Bibles. The ones who want to try to substitute that feeling for actual obedience to the Lord. Just like we tell those people, hey, just because that's how you feel, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved. In the same way, John's saying, we take a dose of our own medicine. John says, just because you might feel unsaved, doesn't necessarily mean that you are not saved. Just because our heart condemns us, doesn't make it so. John says, God is greater than our hearts. Brethren, if our Lord says we are saved, we are saved whether we feel particularly saved in that moment or not. And I am making those two points together this evening to help us see just how dangerous it is to rely on our emotions as assurance for our salvation. Deciding that I can be assured of my salvation based on how I feel, well, that sets us up and that opens up the door for the most colossal failure of all on the Day of Judgment. And likewise... Deciding that somehow I'm not saved because I just don't really feel like I'm saved in this moment, that does nothing but disturb us and distress us and discourage us. It saps the joy out of our Christianity. It hinders our service to the Lord. It may even get us to the point like that young sister where we decide we're just going to throw in the towel. Our emotions can be deceiving. Jeremiah is the one who said that the heart is deceitful. It is incredibly, desperately sick which means that what we feel is often a false gauge for our assurance. Now, having said some things about false assurance, let me say a word or two concerning a doctrine in which there is no assurance to be found. I want to say very emphatically this evening that there is no assurance, none, in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. This is, of course, a very popular and a widely held belief in the religious world today. That once you are saved, that there's nothing that you could ever possibly do that would cause you to be unsaved. Nothing that you could do that could cause you to be lost again. That you don't ever have to worry about the idea of somehow losing or forfeiting your salvation because once you're saved, that's it. You're sealed. You're saved. End of discussion. And of course, there's lots of different terminology that gets bandied about to describe that concept. There's the perseverance of the saints. That's the P in the tulip of Calvinism. 
There's the impossibility of apostasy. Try saying that five times fast. There's the doctrine of eternal security. You can't fall from grace. All kinds of different words and expressions that get used to describe that. But they all arrive at the same place. That once Jesus saves you, you can never, ever be lost. And i got to tell you, that sounds, that sounds very comforting. If I was looking for some comfort and for some assurance and that was presented to me, man, I would think that sounds pretty good. If it's true, that would be the most ironclad, the most bulletproof assurance you could ever have. The only problem is, it's not true. Look with me in Galatians 5, please. In Galatians chapter 5, the Bible makes plain that no one can come and get you from Jesus. The devil can't do that. No human being can do that. We often sing that song sometimes and it says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And you know what? That's exactly right. But you know what else? The Bible also makes plain that if you choose to walk away, if you choose to give up and to forfeit your salvation in Christ, you can. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul's talking here to some Christians in Galatia who were trying to essentially leave faith in Jesus, and we're going to go back to the old law, the law of Moses, and be justified by that. What's Paul say to those folks in Galatians 5 and in verse 4? Paul says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. I'm not sure how or why anybody thinks that they could work their way around that. That's as straightforward as the Bible could make it. I'll add to that some other passages. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, here's another verse along these lines. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 1. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, etc., etc. Paul says that will happen, that can happen, And in fact, that does happen. In fact, let me show you an example of someone who was evidently heading down that very road in the Bible. Look in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we meet this man, this very curious and interesting fellow, by the name of Simon, who by trade was a sorcerer. He's involved in the the black arts, black magic, and all of that sort of stuff, things related to the occult. But Simon hears the gospel. He's exposed to some truths about Jesus Christ. And he's so impressed with that that he decides he wants to be a Christian. And he acts upon that that belief, that desire. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, that when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, verse 13. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This guy becomes a Christian. Drop down now to verse 18, though. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. It seems to me that if the Bible ever wanted to advance 
the doctrine of once saved, always saved, this would have been the perfect opportunity to do it. Peter could have looked at him and he could have said, Now, Simon, I can't sell you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not how that works. And in all honesty, I kind of think there's something kind of crass and just kind of wrong about you even asking that. That maybe says something about how your motives aren't right and your heart's not exactly right, but eh, there's no reason to me opening up that can of worms. I mean, you're saved, brother. You can say anything you please. You can do anything you please. It's never going to change the fact that you're saved now and that you'll always be saved. But Peter doesn't say that. doesn't say anything even closely akin to that. What Peter says is, Simon, you need to repent. That this was not something that you could just ignore or sweep under the rug. This was sin. Notice the language of verse 23. The bond, the chains of iniquity. You're enslaved to sin again. If Simon persisted on in this sin, Peter seems to be suggesting that Simon is in danger of losing his salvation. There's some urgency to get that turned around. Let me give you one more verse in this connection. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, the adult class on Wednesday nights here at Lakeside studying the book of Hebrews right now. I think this passage probably has already been discussed in recent weeks. I think this, in, for many ways, this may be the most blunt contradiction of once saved, always saved. Here is a passage that is addressed specifically to Christians, to saved individuals. And the writer says this in verse 12, Hebrews 3 verse 12, Take care, be careful, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I may not be able to stand up here and tell you exactly when that occurs in a person's life. There is no doubt that Hebrews 3 verse 12 teaches That it is possible for a Christian to sin to a point at which he or she becomes lost. And that's not the ideas and think-sos of Josh McKibben. And that's not Church of Christ doctrine. That's the Bible. And I do wish I could stand up here. And I wish I could just echo the chorus and the refrain of the religious world who says that once saved, always saved is a most wholesome and comforting doctrine. The truth of the matter is, it's not right. And it's not wholesome. And there is no comfort to be found in it at all. Once saved, always saved, gives us no assurance. Now at this point, somebody's probably thinking, Josh, I'm kind of sick of talking about stuff that doesn't provide me assurance. I thought we're here to talk about where we get some real assurance from. And you know what? That's what I want to. And the good news is, the Bible has us covered. We don't have to live lives where, okay, I believe in God, and I believe He's kind and He's good, but at the very same time over here in my life, I doubt His salvation. I doubt that He's going to save me. I doubt that He loves me enough or that He would care about me enough to actually save my soul. That's not God's will for our lives. Assurance of our salvation, it is found in one place and one place only. It is found in the Lord. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, please. In Acts chapter 2, on the very first occasion when the gospel is preached publicly, listen to what Peter says as part of this sermon in Acts chapter 2. As he quotes here from the prophet Joel, in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 21, Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to notice that the emphasis there is on God. 
It's on a cry to God. God, save me. It is about what the Lord has done. It is about what the Lord is doing. In fact, I'll add to this what's said in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, I cite these verses from time to time as I'm extending the invitation, speaking to Christians who maybe there's things not right in their relationship with the Lord. These verses are very helpful for us in moments like that. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we need to do to be assured of our salvation? What we need to do is we need to trust in God to forgive us of our sins. We need to trust on His Word and the promises that are revealed therein. That's what we need to do and that is where assurance is found. Isn't that how it works? Isn't that how it works whenever someone is first saved? Whenever someone first becomes a Christian? Imagine somebody wants to obey the gospel, maybe even this very evening. I'm going to make up an imaginary person. We're going to make up Joe. I don't know if there's any Joes in attendance. We're talking about imaginary Joe. Imagine Joe comes forward during the invitation song, and he expresses that he believes Jesus is indeed God's Son, And he wants to become a Christian. He wants to surrender and submit himself to serve God and wants to become a child of God this very evening. And so what do we do? Well, we take Joe's confession. He makes that acknowledgement publicly. And a few moments later, we come in this water back here and we baptize Joe. And he comes up out of that water and what is he now? He's saved. He's saved. His sins have been forgiven, Acts 2.38. His sins have been washed away, Acts 22.16. His name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. He is now a part of the body of Christ, Acts 2.47. He is a saved individual. When Joe comes up out of that water, does Joe say, Ha ha! Look at me! Look at what I did! I'm saved because I'm so impressive! Look at what I was able to do for myself! No, absolutely not! In fact, if Joe did start to say that, we jump in there and we say, whoa, 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 Joe. Hold on there, buddy. I don't think you understand what happened when you did that there. Salvation is not a result of works that any man should boast, Ephesians chapter 2. It's the gift of God, Joe. You've not been saved because of what you did. You've been saved because of what God did for you. That's how that worked. God forgave your sins. With that understanding, Joe's able to go home. Pillow his head. He's able to feel good. He's able to rest easy at night. He is assured of his salvation. How? Because he did something so good? Because he did something so great it was all within himself? No. Because he trusted God. He trusted God's Word and God's promises who forgave his sins. Now that's how salvation works. And I think we understand that that's how salvation works, at least initially. Why then do we somehow imagine that the assurance for salvation, that somehow it changes once you become a Christian. What makes us think that the, that the basis for our salvation, that it suddenly becomes different once we are a saved person? Oh, well, well now I'm a Christian. Well, now, I mean, now it's a whole completely different set of rules. I mean, see, back there, yeah, I, I was saved by grace back there. That was all of God's doing there. That's where my assurance came from when I was baptized. But now, well, now it's on me. Now I've got to get out there and get all busy. Now I've got to go hit it really hard. I've got to do all the work. I've got to somehow earn my salvation. Really? If that sounds incredibly flawed, it's because it is. 
But isn't it true that that's how a lot of Christians think that salvation exactly works? That God got me this far, but if I am going to make it all the way, well then, well then that's on me now. I gotta keep my salvation based on what I do, it's based on my performance. Is it any wonder then that people don't feel very sure that they're saved? And it's because they're trusting in what? They're trusting in themselves! And there is no assurance to be found in trusting in myself. Honestly, I want to say to you this evening, if you really do believe that assurance is found, if your assurance is found in getting busier for the Lord, in working harder for the Lord, and doing more for the Lord, then I'm going to tell you tonight, you're never going to be sure of your salvation. Because you're never going to think that you've done enough. You're never going to think that you've been good enough. You're never going to think that you've worked hard enough. You're never going to be certain. We tell people before they're baptized, hey, you can't earn your salvation by what you do. But what makes us think that once you are baptized, that hey, you can keep your salvation based on what you do? Salvation by works is a failure before you become a Christian. And salvation by works is a failure after you have become a Christian. In Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians 2, I think the Bible shows that this cuts both ways. In Galatians chapter 2, look in verse 16. Paul writing to those folks who were thinking about chucking Christianity pretty much or just kind of going back to Judaism. In Galatians 2 and verse 16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't be justified by what you're doing before you're baptized. You can't be justified by what you're doing after you are baptized. There is no assurance to be found in that at all. Now right about now, somebody is probably thinking, Josh, are you saying that it doesn't matter whether or not you live right? Is that what you're suggesting this evening? That it really doesn't matter how you live once you've been baptized and once you become a Christian? What did I say at the very beginning of this lesson? I said, please listen all the way through. And I'm asking you to do that right now. Somebody asked, is it important or is it not important to live right? It's absolutely important that we live right. Huge chunks of the Bible are about living right. The majority of the New Testament is about living and walking in the footsteps of Jesus, developing the heart and the character of Christ, becoming self-disciplined, developing and growing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Those things are very important. Be faithful unto death, Jesus said. But the question is, why do we want to live right? Are we living right because we somehow think in our mind that that's going to earn us, that that's going to deserve for us, that that's going to merit us salvation in the end? Or are we doing those things out of the overflow of our heart? Are we doing those things because we love the Lord? Because He's done so much for us. That we live like a Christian because we want to please our Father. We want to make Him happy. We want to worship Him and serve Him because we love Him. Living right is certainly important. Knowing God as we established last evening. It begins forging a new relationship with God's commandments. It means having a real inclination toward His commandments. It means having a genuine desire to do His commandments. It means having a growing practical application of His commandments. It means having real contrition in our hearts whenever we neglect those commandments. But you know what? That is a far cry from saying, i got to do all this stuff because that's where my assurance is going to be found. And if I do all of that stuff perfectly and I happen to die and, and leave this life tonight, well, well, that's how I'll know that I'm going to go to heaven. Oh! Heaven forbid our assurance can't ever be found in ourselves. 
Our assurance has to be in the Lord. You remember that verse we read a moment ago in 1 John 1? Can we go back to that? In 1 John chapter 1, let's try that again. In 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, look at that right there. That, that's assurance right there. In fact, John continues talking about that. Verse 10. If we say that we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. His Word's not in us. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Hey, don't decide that this means I can just go and sin willy-nilly. Just do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about how I live and how I conduct myself in the kingdom. No, don't say that. We are concerned about how we live. But even if we sin, even if we fail, don't, don't hit the panic button. John continues on. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our assurance is found in the Lord. Assurance is found in His promise to forgive me of my sins. Not in what I am able to do. In fact, would you look in Philippians chapter 3? In Philippians chapter 3, if you are of the mindset that how I can be sure of my salvation is because I'm out there just banging it hard for the Lord. Man, I'm just doing all kinds of stuff for God. And that's how I know I'm saved. I'm going to tell you something right now. You ain't ever going to be able to outdo the Apostle Paul. Ain't nobody going to be able to outdo the Apostle Paul. Here's this guy who wrote more than half the New Testament, went around establishing congregations everywhere, helping people become Christians all the time. He was an apostle. And yet this guy says, actually what this guy does not say, is that my assurance is found in all the great things that I've done. I've crossed all the T's and I've dotted all the I's. That's not what Paul says. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, where's your assurance coming from? Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, indeed... I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says it's about trusting and placing our confidence in the Lord. That's where assurance is found. I'm saved because God has promised to forgive me of my sins. It's just that simple. And that's what Joe, new Christian, needs to say when he climbs up out of the baptistry. That I'm saved. I know it because God has said in His Word, He'll forgive me if I do that. And that's what I need to be able to say. Every single day of my life, even after I've been baptized, I need to be reminded that the very thing that saved me in the first place, God's grace, that it is the very thing that continues to save me. As one dear brother simply put it, and I'll never forget it, he said, that which saved us saves us. And I need to keep trusting in that. Trusting in His grace. Trusting in His goodness. And as I do that, am I going to try to please the Lord? Absolutely I'm going to try to please the Lord. I'm going to try to please the Lord in all that I do, but am I going to please the Lord always? Nope. I know my frailty. I know my weaknesses and I know my shortcomings. I know from time to time I will do things that are wrong. It's not that I want to, but I know what I'm made of. I'm going to do things that I wish I hadn't done. But when that happens, number one, it'll be out of character for me. 
And then secondly, I can know and I can have confidence that I can bow my head and I can bow my heart and I can humbly become before the Lord and I can ask Him to forgive me of my sins. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 1. And then what? What happens when I then ask God for that forgiveness? He does it. He gives it. I trust Him that He can do that and that He will do that. Instead of trusting in me, a fallible and a foolish man, thinking about what I can do, instead I'll trust in the perfect and living God as I stand on His promises. That, that's the basis of real assurance. I trust God to forgive me. And that is the assurance that each and every child of God in this room and everywhere else needs to be able to find. So that when someone comes to me and they ask the question, Josh, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I don't have to get a case of the mumbles. And I don't have to hem-haw around with that question and give all kinds of qualifiers in answering it. I can say with confidence and certainty in my heart, yes sir or yes ma'am, I am saved. I am going to heaven by the grace of God. By the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, I will be there. That's the promise that we have from the Lord. That is the assurance that we ought to have as we stand on those promises. Can we try that verse in 1 John 5 one final time? Go back where we started, 1 John chapter 5. Look in verse 13 again. 1 John 5 and in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice verse 14 now. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. I know one of the things that from time to time I am going to need to ask the Lord, and that is I'm going to need to ask Him for His forgiveness. And when I do that, I don't have to be wringing my hands, sweating, I just don't know if God's going to forgive me. No. First John 5 says, I can know what the answer is going to be. I can know that He will forgive and I can know that I am saved. That is the blessed assurance that God wants for His children. Now in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to be led in a song of invitation. And that's going to give all of us an opportunity to think about and to figure out whether or not we've got that real assurance that John was describing. First of all, if you are a Christian and there is things in your life, stuff in your life, let's just call it what it is, if there is sin in your life and it's creating a real barrier, it's standing in the way of you being able to have that real assurance, it's time to get it out. Get it out. You know that it's hindering you. The Lord knows that it's hindering you. Remove it. And the promise of 1 John chapter 1 stands. We will confess those things to God. He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'd be glad to pray with you this evening to help you to find that cleansing and to find that assurance. It may be, brother or sister, that you have searched within yourself and you have, as honest in that examination as you have been, you have found yourself to be blameless. And yet you still continue to struggle with doubts. The accuser continues to say things in your ear. It may just be that you just want to ask us to encourage you and to lift you up in prayer, to help be there for you and to remind you as daily and as regularly as we possibly can that we are the children of God. Can we help you in that?
It may be though this evening that you're not a Christian. It may be this evening, whoops, I've gone ahead. It may be that you don't have any assurance and you don't know that you have assurance and in fact you shouldn't know that you have any assurance. It's because you're not in a right relationship with God. The great thing about this moment and about times like this is that this is a wonderful opportunity. You're in the midst of people who care about you, people who are interested in the Lord and in the Lord's things. We would love nothing more than to assist you in rendering your obedience to the gospel, accessing that wonderful grace and mercy and forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. Can we help you tonight to confess your faith in Jesus as Lord and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins? The water is ready. I check it before every service. All things are ready. There's garments back here, myself, others who'd be willing to assist you in doing just that and become a Christian tonight. You come up out of that water and you can know, I'm saved. I know that I have eternal life. Don't you want that assurance? I want that assurance. Let's get that assurance. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.